And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. That's right, Greta. It is Friday, and this is Climate Change Roundtable, episode number 87. I'm your host, Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute. We've got our regular panel with us today, Dr. H. Sterling Burnett, Director of Heartland's Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy, and Linnea Lucan, Research Fellow at the Heartland Institute. Hi, guys. Hello, Anthony. So today we're going to talk about the big white elephant in the climate room, UHI, the urban heat island effect. Now, it's been known for decades, but it's routinely dismissed by climate advocates as being either insignificant or we adjust for it when they really don't. So we're going to be joined a little bit later by Dr. Roy Spencer uh, from the University of Alabama Huntsville, who will talk about his new and fantastic UHI data set in a pre-recorded interview. Now, his work shows clearly that the effect is not just strong in the United States, but elsewhere in the world. And he's found some amazing things that we're going to show you on some maps that he's put together. But let's kick off the show, as we usually do, alerting you to some of the craziest climate stories of the week. And as always, we got a lot to choose from. First, liquid trees. This is actually a couple of years old, but we didn't see it, and I thought it was so ridiculous it needed a little bit of attention. You can't get climate change changing fast enough back to where you want it to be unless you make liquid trees, apparently. Yes, look at this thing. This is a tank of algae. In other words, it's a big tank of pond scum that they're putting out in the city to make oxygen and so forth. Isn't that so much prettier than a tree? All right. Yeah. I got a lot to say about this one. Um, <laughs> one, we do this in the in the um, uh, fish tank keeping hobby. What you do is you put a little bit of fish tank water into a empty container and you set it outside in the sun and it grows a bunch of green algae, which is a little microscopic organism that floats around in the water column. And it is very good for like fish fry and stuff. So we've been doing this for a long time. This is not new technology. And nope. if someone got a grant to do this, I am personally offended for all people who have <laughs> ever just thrown a water-filled water bottle on a kitchen windowsill. Um, also, this completely ruins the point of actually planting trees which do the same function, maybe not as efficiently, but they perform the same function and they also provide shade and um, contribute to mental health. This kind yes. of thing is what makes people become like Ted Kaczynski's. <laughs> it's a what the hell are you thinking project? I can uh, see I can see someone going over the edge going, liquid trees. 
it's time to start building a bomb. Now, you know what? What offends me most about this is not the technology. If, if they want to put these things on every street corner and suck up some carbon dioxide and put out some oxygen, you know, I don't actually think it's an awful eyesore. It's not a tree, but uh, it, it, I, I could I would label it modern art almost functional modern art performance art um but what if offends it was performance me, art we could put bill mckibben in it <laughs> <laughs> but what offends me is that they call it a tree that ain't a tree just like and you know i'm gonna go on a little rant here just like almond milk ain't milk i'm sorry it's a mis it's a misuse of the english language to label something something it is not Milk comes from uh, a human or animal breast. That's it. Almonds being crushed into liquid aren't milk. Neither is rice or anything else. It, yeah. It's a sales pitch. And those aren't trees. Nope, they're not. You know, and um, it's the kind of thing that I think will probably turn a lot of people into climate skeptics. Because when you see this, you think, what? Anyway. Speaking of ridiculous things, Professor Michael E. Mann posted this week something, well, ridiculous, like he usually does. We face an American election unlike any other. It will determine not only the course of the American experiment, but the path of civilization collectively following. On the left is democracy and environmental stewardship. On the right is fascism and planetary devastation. Choose wisely. Hmm. Yeah, he's not political or anything. He's just a pure scientist, right? Well, I didn't know fascism was on the ballot. I thought if it's on a ballot, it's democracy. Uh, now, sometimes democracy actually produces results that Michael Mann doesn't like, but that doesn't make it fascism. Just because he disagrees with something doesn't make it authoritarianism. In fact, what he pushes is authoritarianism through democracy. He wants to elect people who then want to throw out democracy and use bureaucrats to impose their will willy-nilly, ignoring <laughs> constitutional limits on people's freedom. I mean, constitutional protections of people's freedom. He would just as soon throw out the Constitution, go to democracy until he gets what he wants, and then they would throw out the rest of democracy. No need to vote anymore because we're protecting the planet. We've got to save the planet from... Uh, people actually having a say yeah. or doing what they want. This is that, noble cause corruption at its finest. That's fascism. Uh, voting for someone you disagree with who would then reject your policies, that's not fascism. Yep. So anyway, um, his cohort in slime... <laughs> Drop, him in North Korea. Drop him in North Korea and let him find out what real authoritarianism is. Yeah. Anyway, so this Dr. Matthew Uwilecki, who's been on our show, who went from being, you know, a straight and narrow geologist kind of guy at a university in, uh, in I believe it was um, Alabama, decided he's done with being that and he's become a climate skeptic and he's now become very prominent on Twitter. But he points out that Professor Hayhoe talks about it by blocking all those who question her religion. The irony of that background of this picture is great. Well, yeah. Let's talk about it, but hey, you're blocked. But she doesn't even have any cognizance of what she writes, apparently, because a few 
years ago in 2018, I would never block anyone for disagreeing with me. Healthy disagreement is the foundation for compromise and forward momentum. And then down below, she points out, hey, Dennis, you're talking to someone I've already blocked for being dismissive. Ah, the irony meter broken, it's pegged and snapped off. <laughs> Oh my goodness. She says she blocks she says she blocks them for uh, abusive comments uh things like that but then she says she blocked this guy for being dismissive. So he dismissed her views. Evidently that's abuse and and uh and awful uh in the end she doesn't want to talk about it. She's not willing Ooh. to have an open exchange of ideas, which is what she says is necessary. So Right. It's it, it's it's not just irony. It's very public hypocrisy. That it is. That it is. Okay, so now we're moving on to the electric fail bus. Oh, this is hilarious. There's this bus in San Francisco, fully electric, fully battery powered, loses its power going up the hill and it rolls backwards and crashes into a row of cars. Here's a video to watch. It's pretty entertaining. One hundred percent battery electric. That to me looks like assault with a battery. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also it, it wasn't electric when it was rolling down the hill. It was momentum powered. At that point, yes, it was. And with that extra lead and that Gra mass, gravity, extra, gravity got extra powered. momentum. Maybe they extra should momentum. pitch these. They should pitch these buses as gravity powered buses. Yeah, Leia, what do you think about all this? Oh, wait, we've got the snowplow. I forgot about that. Yes, they have electric snowplows in New York City. Well, sort of. Whoever yeah, it's 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 a pretty bad idea. Um, I made a joke in the chat the other day about how when I was a kid, we had a Barbie Jeep and we <laughs> lived on a really steep hill. And I used to try to drive the Barbie Jeep up the hill and its battery would give out about halfway up the hill. And then you would just roll back down the hill and flip the jeep sometimes um it was really fun but uh i'm actually a little bit surprised that the technology hasn't advanced much beyond that for a full-size bus uh that's pretty unfortunate i'm sure most of the time it makes it but the idea that sometimes you might not make it is not reassuring um yeah. and in terms of the snowplow issue look new york was trying to do this they 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 double um, they kind of double up on their uh, municipal vehicles by using garbage and sweep, uh, street cleaning trucks as snowplows in the winter. And they're looking at replacing all of those with electric um, garbage trucks. And so they, they replaced one of them la a couple years ago. And the thing gets almost two hours of plow time in before it needs to be recharged. They work... 12 hour shifts <laughs> during the you know heavy blizzard season and stuff in New York to keep the streets clear. This isn't just a stupid idea, it's an unsafe idea. Mm. I mean, this is really this is a public safety issue. This is not a, you know, look at how stupid these guys are. They're wasting resources on this. This no. is actually going to get people like hurt or killed. It's not just the snow plows isn't just a safety issue. The the buses are a safety issue. Look, it plowed into cars. If you've got school buses in Maine that are electric and they get or or Wisconsin or North Dakota and halfway through their route, the kids get stuck on a frozen uh, a bus that fails. 
that's a safety issue. As far yeah. as the buses, you'd think they'd figure out braking. Uh, elevators have automatic, you know, something goes wrong with an elevator. It has an automatic braking system, so it doesn't just fall. How can a bus not have an automatic braking system? Yeah, it truly is the fail. Idiotic. Bus. Well, here it is. Here's the thing with that one, though. It's not just that, you know, they had the the power to the vehicle be charged by the battery. They replaced their, like, hydraulic braking that a lot of buses tend to have with also electric braking. And because that's also tied into the battery, that's what failed in that bus situation. Yeah. No, I so, had experience with that. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just stupid, you know? I, Look at the Barbie Jeep. If the Barbie Jeep fails because the only power source is that battery, there's no other type of brakes on the Barbie Jeep. It's going to slide backwards down the hill because it's not going to make it. You should not design an actual human carrying like full-size bus uh, to have the same detriment. Yeah, yeah I had a... You know, a lot of these things are engineered by people who are not engineers. They're socialists. I had a, I had a similar experience. I had a a Jaguar. It wasn't all electric, but the, the battery was in the back and it had a wiring harness that went under the the entire car. It was protected by a cardboard, a particle board uh, cover, the underside that got torn up and broken and was very expensive to replace. Over time, the harness dragged, the wiring dragged through. It was so all electric. I couldn't put it into gear. I couldn't open my uh, glove compartment. Even the glove compartment was electric. So uh, I understand if something's really, really all electric, you're in trouble. Well, and that's, that's also interesting, Sterling, because of what just passed, um, I think, in the House of Representatives that uh, Thomas Massey was like the only Republican to vote against it. And that's that the government wants to be able to have an, a remote shutdown feature on all vehicles. And so imagine, you know, if your car is fully electric, everything is electric. And now you're giving them, they say that it's uh, tied into detecting like impaired driving and then they can shut down your car if you're showing signs of impaired driving. Uh, but of course, anyone who's not born yesterday is going to know uh, how that's going to work out yes. uh, over yeah. time with regulatory creep. So no, it's, 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 it's going to be, you're driving too much. We're shutting you down. Your carbon emissions are too, well, of course, if it's electric. Uh, I don't know what they, but he says, we don't like you. You don't get to travel is what it is. Sounds like a big black market for a kill the kill switch thing. All I right. can't believe Republicans voted for that. Yeah, I'm about anti I misspoke. Yeah. I think it was actually 19 or 20 Republicans that voted for it and the rest voted against. But oh. yeah, it's pretty shocking that any voted for it. All right, so let's move on. We've got a video clip here that is hilarious. So this is a parody video clip. I just want you to know ahead of time. This is something that Linnea requested that we review. So just watch and enjoy. Hey, it's Joe from uh, Climate Change Rescue Services. You can call us. We get you dumbass unstuck. Uh, they stick themselves to like paintings, to like concrete trees, anything that any kind of... Uh, soft guy we might want to save yeah pretty much contracting now i'm full-time i was doing it as a hobby really because i just kind of love the business but uh, they fly me out all over the place germany france most of the time i just show up to france is already people are stuck to stuff like it's a good it's a good business to get into we uh come out here to munich airport we've got a couple of bozos over here we got to cut them out most of the time we can get in with chisels we can chop these guys up save most of the most of the digits 
Yo, drumstick doing that. Oh, shit. Fuck it off, dude. You still got one digit. You satisfy the old lady with that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it'll be all right, bro. Check it off. Check it off. He'll be good. He'll be fine. Two days, he'll be heated up. This guy, though, Hans, dude. You're taking it like a chip. You're just right off at the shoulder here. Cut off both these limbs, saved you. And uh, you're doing great, dude. I don't want to touch it because it's still a little tender. Now, these two situations, they happen all the time. But I got another client back here. This does not happen every day. So let's go take a look. Okay. Genetic horse. So Sven over here, he glued his slung to the concrete. So it's... It's a little abnormal. Most of the time, it's hands, feet. This is a little peculiar because he's got his, uh, you know, his what's it stuck there. I know about this. No, I didn't read the email, right? Normally, he could go down an easy angle, a lot of three-dimensional space, but uh, really, his body's covering up the problematic areas, so we got to go in horizontally. So, brace up, buddy. Debately stop climate change and fossil fuels. Well, we could only hope, buddy. <laughs> oh goodness oh normal I like, world i like oh. the last question didn't we at least stop climate change to save the future <laughs> <laughs> that's dedication man yeah. yes yes it is anyhow uh yeah that that's one of the f most hilarious things i've seen uh, a parroting these climate change protesters mm -hmm. that like to glue themselves or stuff, you know. Uh, anyway, so you know the left is really bonkers on climate change. They've they're just gone off the rails in these things. But now we've got something that Linnea found the other day, and we published on WhatsApp with that. And climate bots are now apparently haunting the web. And you can see some climate bots there. They may look like a familiar figure in the climate wars. Uh, anyway. Um, this article points out that on Fox News, well, Linnea, I'll let you take it. This is your article. Sure. Um, I was looking for stuff to cover for climate realism, and I was reading a Fox News article, and I scrolled down to the um, comment section because I hate myself <laughs> and started reading the, you know, the good old flame wars occurring down there. And I started to notice that a ton of the comments under there had the exact same structure. They were these nice, polite little comments where they would say, my grandpa lives near this glacier and he noticed that it's melting. Now I understand why we need to do something about climate change, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, every single one of them had more or less the same structure. The names all had more or less the same structure, first name, last name, followed by a couple numbers, which if you're on Twitter, you know that that tends to be an indicator that it's a bot account. Same thing here. Um, and then I back searched these comments, you know, I Googled the exact wording of these comments and found that they were also being posted to Reddit in different places. Um, and so I realized that someone has made a chat GPT bot and made a bunch of accounts, at least on Fox. I haven't found these comments on other websites yet on Fox and on um, climate skeptical or climate unskeptical uh, Reddit subreddits um and so it's it's kind of it has the feeling of like a test run of this kind of a project and it might not seem like such a big deal because there's all kinds of bots all the time but it struck me because it's it's pushing the narrative right and it's doing it in this kind of anecdotal 
way, very simple, easy to read. And after seeing all of the articles that we've seen about how, you know, the government is investing in climate communications and, you know, countering denialism and stuff like that, I, I realize that there's a pretty good chance that there's actually maybe some government money behind stuff like this. Um, and so I wanted to write up this article and put it out there just so that people are aware that this is happening and can kind of be on their toes and be on the lookout for it, because it might not seem like it would affect any of us because you just kind of read the comment and roll your eyes and move on. But people who are a little bit on the fence might actually be swayed, I think, by this kind of approach. And there's a lot of people who are not very internet savvy who might not even notice that it's a bot doing this. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. Well, you, it's a you, disturbing trend for sure. You will be assimilated. Yeah. <laughs> man, oh man. All right. Is that Michael so, Man, oh man? You can, yeah. You can take that just like that. <laughs> All right, time to man up. We are going to be talking to a real scientist, Dr. Roy Spencer. Now, he couldn't join us live on the program, but we recorded earlier this week an interview with him. I recorded an interview with him about his new UHI data set. And I got to tell you, this thing is fantastic because it, for the first time, quantifies UHI on a global scale. It, it's just amazing. And so with all that, uh, work that he's done, he's able to show some things that we've never seen before. And with that, let's roll the video. This week, we interviewed Dr. Roy Spencer, who is a principal research scientist at the University of Alabama Huntsville. Many of you know him from his blog, drroyspencer.com, and many of you know him from the fact that he and Dr. John Christie have created and have maintained the only satellite data set worth looking at over the past 30 years, the UAH data set. And so we're gonna be interviewing Dr. Spencer today because he has some very interesting new findings related to the urban heat island effect, often known as UHI. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Spencer. Uh, appreciate hey. you taking the time. Hey, Anthony, good to be with you. So you recently published a paper, and as an offshoot of this paper, you created this new, and as far as I understand it, completely unique and, un, to use an alarmist word, unprecedented data set that's never been done before. Can you tell me a little about that? Well, as you know, uh, trying to figure out how much urban heat island effect has uh, impacted our temperature measurements around the world is has been a, a, a huge source of uncertainty regarding how much of land-based warming that's been observed over the last, oh, whatever, 50, 100 years is real versus how much of it is just due to the fact that we keep building things around these thermometers right. and it, 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 it creates uh, an enhanced urban heat island effect that's totally unrelated to global warming. I mean, this, this kind of warming, urban warming would occur if there was no climate change at all. If there was no global warming, this would occur anyway, just because population increases, po uh, uh, prosperity right. increases, we build more things. So I, I, for years now, I've been looking at a different way of trying to quantify this because usually what people do is they look at individual stations, which is great by itself. You, you know, you've done more of that than anybody by going to, to U.S. stations like personally and encouraging other people to do that and document 
you know, just how much contamination there is right around individual thermometers. And that's very useful. But, you know, how do you extend that to not only the whole country, but, you know, other countries, the world? Uh, so that's where I started playing around with an idea of how we can take all of these millions of thermometer observations from around the world and quantitatively analyze them. And what I settled on was a technique where I look at all closely uh, spaced uh, station pairs, say within 100 kilometers of each other everywhere, uh, every month for years going back to 1880. In other words, every year since between 1880 and 2023, I quantified the difference between neighboring thermometer sites and, and this is the important part, related that temperature difference statistically to population density differences. And the reason why I'm using population density is because we now have global gridded data sets provided by the Europeans, which go back centuries of uh, population density all around the world. So this gives us the opportunity to, to uh, mash together a whole bunch of data, millions of thermometer observations and all of these estimates High, high resolution estimates of population density back through the years and try to figure out just how much warming is occurring as a function of population increase. So it would naturally follow that as population in a specific location increases and there's a thermometer there, the thermometer is going to get warmer because right. extra infrastructure is being built, waste energy is being expended uh, and so forth and so on. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. Yes, it is. And the new part of this is, you know, if, if we take the simple example of an urban location, let's say you got three stations that are close to each other, you know, within 100 kilometers of each other, say 50 kilometers. Let's say you got an urban station. On average, it's going to be warmer than a suburban station. That suburban station, in turn, is going to be warmer than a rural station. So that's like two classes of, of population density right there, okay? urban to suburban, suburban to rural. Well, right. in the paper we're trying to get published, we split it up into 22 classes. In other words, we've got nearly wilderness compared to very rural, and then very rural compared to somewhat rural. And it, what's amazing is that when you've got millions of observations, uh, you actually get a signal of just how much warming there is going from wilderness to very rural. And it turns out this isn't anything new. This is something that Dr. Oki, you know, a pioneer in the urban heat island effect research back in 1973 published is that warming occurs very rapidly when you start building anything, anything. So even a lot of rural sites have excess warming from the urban heat island effect. And then as you add more and more infrastructure, as the city builds up, you get more and more warming, but by lesser and lesser amounts. And then when you get to inner city, it really doesn't matter if you add more population, it adds almost no warming. It's, it's like the urban heat island effect is saturated. Well, we, we quantified this, this nonlinear relationship. And uh, I built this, I decided to do this globally. And so I built like our version one beta mm -hmm. <laughs> data set where I use six categories of population density differences. And I look in seven different latitude bands and in four different seasons. 
uh, all around the world, land areas. And then I built this data set that you see on the screen. Uh, this is just for April of 2023. We have a map like this for every month of every year going back to 1800. And are um, those maps publicly available to anyone? Yes, they are. Yeah, I've made them publicly available because I'd like people that analyze data to look at them and, and tell me, you know, where the problems are and what they think of them. Because this is this is my first cut at this. Uh, so anyway, you know, uh, it just it brings a thought to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm going to look for all of these and see if I can't make an animation of this through time. I, I bet the animation would be quite telling of this yes. particular graphic over time. That would be great if somebody would do that. I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Well, we'll get on that and we'll perhaps maybe show that at another time uh, on another show or maybe later in the show if we get it done. Uh, I want to remind our viewers that this is being pre-recorded uh, earlier in the week because Dr. Spencer couldn't join us during our regular live broadcast. Now, if we can zoom in on the United States, particularly the east and southeast side of the United States, it becomes obvious immediately that major cities such as Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, uh, Houston, Washington, D.C., New York City, Detroit, all of these are showing very, very strong signatures of warming. And on the West Coast, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle, uh, even Salt Lake City shows a significant amount, and as does Phoenix. And this is not surprising to anyone who's ever driven through a city, particularly at night, and they have a car thermometer, and if you're driving along and you're coming in from the outskirts, you know, the temperature might read, you know, 85 degrees at the outskirts. And then when you get into the center of the city, it might jump up to 90. And so what's happening, as I understand it from my own investigation and reading your paper, is that the solar radiation that's coming in during the day is heating up all that infrastructure, the asphalt, the, the concrete, and so forth and so on. And then it's getting released at night. That energy is radiating into the air at night as long wave infrared radiation. And that warms the air. Uh, and that, of course, brings the temperature up because the, the nighttime temperature, the low, and the daytime temperature, the high, are averaged together to create the average signal, which is used to measure climate change. So if the low gets warmer, it naturally follows that the average is going to get warmer. Is that right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that's mostly what's going on. Uh, you know, it, it's complex, the issue of what causes the urban heat island. In fact, what you said is basically right. Uh, the way I look at it is that uh, an urban area is more able to store that solar energy. It, it stores more solar energy during the day. The pavement conducts heat down deep into the ground that wouldn't occur if there were if there was grass or vegetation. Uh, and then, like you said, that gets released at height at night, and that's why the the urban heat island effect is greatest at night, at least on air temperature. I mean, obviously, the skin, you know, the the, the concrete gets hotter during the day when the sun's shining on it, but people don't feel that; they feel the air temperature, uh, and the, this effect becomes strongest on air temperature at night, and not so much during the day. Most interesting on this graph or this map, let's go back to the map for a second. If we zoom in on, let's say, uh, Kansas or Nebraska, uh, zoom in on that right in the center of the United States there. Look at that. You can see trails uh, like coming out of um, Kansas City, Missouri. You can see these trails. And I suspect these are towns along major thoroughfares, major highways. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, those are all those are all just towns. You got to remember that what you're looking at is basically population density data that I've cal uh, calibrated in terms of a temperature change associated with that population density. Um, that's where I, you know, bring in the 13 million station pair of observations of temperature differences and population density differences. I bring those in and, and then calib calibrate the, the population density data set in terms of temperature. Okay. So this seems to me to be a very straightforward process. There's nothing magic about this. So we didn't have to wait for technology to be developed to do this, although there was some database requirements that were needed, you know, from USGS. But why do you think no one has done this before? I have no idea. I, I honestly don't. I mean, it, a lot it of seems people so obvious to do. A lot of, yeah, a lot of people have worked on this over the years, and I'm just surprised that nobody has done this before. But when I got serious about this in the last year and decided I was going to do something with this and, and write a paper on it, uh, I started doing a literature search and I couldn't find anything like this, even though it seemed like a sort of an obvious way of analyzing the data to me. Okay, so we look at all of these uh, different places. Now, let, let's zoom out and go to, let's say, India, for example. Now, India, right up against the Himalayas there, has a huge, huge swatch of red and and pink which indicates the highest warming areas it's also a very high population density in that region um what's the explanation for this is it just population is it infrastructure is it a combination what it's 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 the population density it's the population density uh you know it's it's a very heavily populated country uh i, I i'm not really familiar with india or china uh, so I was kind of surprised to see this. Now, one of the things you're seeing is this, what I mentioned, that nonlinear relationship that you get considerable warming, let's say just going from one person per square kilometer, which is virtually wilderness, to 20 or 30, which is still rural, or 50 or 100 persons per square kilometer. That produces quite a bit of warming. And that's what we're seeing here is <clears throat> excuse me, that nonlinear relationship, that it doesn't take very much population density before you get quite a bit of warming. And I think that's what uh, we're seeing is a lot of that area might be sort of considered rural, you know, the terms rural and urban, it turns out there's no strict definition for that. Uh, I and see. it could be that all of that orange area you see there is actually technically considered rural. It just is, it's got enough infrastructure, enough population to bump that temperature up. Right. So the, the, the key to all of this is that thermometers that are used to measure climate change and the daily temperature are nearby where human beings live. And they have to be by design because the humans have to uh, maintain those, get that data back in the, in the old days. It used to be, they would have to walk up to a Stevenson screen or what's called a cotton region shelter. They'd have to open the door, look at the thermometer and write it down on a piece of paper send it in. Um, but today it's, it's automated and they tend to want to keep these thermometers in the same places that they have had them in the past because NOAA and other meteorological agencies, they seem to think a continuity of record is more important than the placement of it. So as we, we get these, these thermometers that have grown, or not the thermometers that have grown, but around the thermometers, all the infrastructure has grown up. A perfect example is Chicago O'Hare Airport. 
where uh, ORD actually stands for Orchard Field, not mm -hmm. O'Hare, which is what it started as. And when you know today, it's a giant megaplex of concrete, asphalt, and tarmac, and jet engine exhaust. So I would suspect that in India, as the population increased, the same kind of effect happened, but just on a much broader scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, that's probably what's going on. Um, one thing I want to mention, since I'm talking to you about this, and you've done so much about the local climate around thermometer locations, what I've done here in no way supersedes or replaces what you've done. It's it's very complementary. And the reason I is, agree. the reason is what I've done involves population data on a spatial scale of like 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers. That's the mm -hmm. finest resolution I can go to is six miles by six miles. I have no information on the local microclimate right around thermometer locations. You know, whether a thermometer is up against a brick wall, right next to a parking lot, I have no information on that. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, could make this all better if there was a way to bring what I've done together with what you've done, at least in the United States. Uh, I don't know how to do that right now. I just wanted to mention that, you know, it, what I've done is totally different from what you've done. And the two approaches together should get us closer to the truth than either one by themselves. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things I want to mention is in my own studies, looking at these microclimates and looking at how close the thermometers are to asphalt, concrete buildings and so forth and so on, is that we located about 114 or so stations in the United States, 104 to 114 um, that are long period stations that have not been encroached upon. And these are uh, stations like at agricultural research sites out in the boonies, out in the in their rural environment that haven't been changed. And when we look at the rate of warming over the last 30 years for those stations versus the rate of warming for stations that are very, very close in um, to, you know, this, this infrastructure, we see about a 50% difference between those kinds of stations and the ones that have been compromised by infrastructure. Does that kind of figure in with what you've seen? Uh, I can believe it. Um the way you're doing it is very different from the way I've done it. And I'm, I'm not claiming that the way I've done it is better. I, I'm only getting about a 20% effect. And then that could be just a limitation of the way I'm doing it. The way you're doing it, I think would be, would be the perfect preferable way of handling the urban heat island contamination problem. If we're looking for climate trends, yeah, what, Anthony, what you've done with uh, rural stations, I think would be the preferred way of handling the issue of whether urbanization has affect land-based temperature trends, is you just, just throw away the urban stations and only use rural ones. Obviously, you've got to find enough rural ones, you know, distributed evenly enough over the area you want to measure, let's say the United States or some other country to do that. But I think that is the best way to do it. And what NOAA does, I think, is the wrong way to do it. They, you know, they throw all the data together from cities and they do fast, uh, uh, complicated statistical adjustments uh, to try to, you know, well, they say homogenize, you know, through all the stuff. I think it's not a good idea to take lousy data and throw it in with good data 
and expect yeah. to get you, something out of the analysis that's better than the good data alone. I don't think that's the way you should do it. Yeah, you, but if that's you take it do. all and, and mix I, it together, blend it all together in a blender, you get with a hot mess. Right, and and we've now got a few papers that have been finally published in the peer review li uh, literature by Katata and the Connollys and Willie Soon and a bunch of other people showing basically pretty good evidence that their homogenization technique uh, does some crazy stuff to the data that isn't good. Yeah. So um, going back to what I have done, uh, I have a, a map here that shows different trends for the United States showing this, the perturbed, what we call the stations that have been encroached upon by infrastructure versus the non-perturbed stations. And this is following um, a premise put together by Michael Leroy of Medio France, who published a paper in 2010, where he quantified not only distance of a thermometer from uh, those sorts of effects, but also the amount of uh, square footage of you know artificial surfaces in the, the viewshed of the thermometer. And what we found is that if we look at the official record for all 1,218 uh, NOAA USHCN stations, we get a uh, a trend of 0.324 degree per decade. But if we look at just the stations that are class one and two, or the ones that have not been encroached upon, the ones that are, are not affected by urbanization and infrastructure, we get 0.204. And this holds no matter how we slice it. And so looking at your data, I see the same thing, even though we've had different approaches going down different paths. The end result is, is that when population increases around a thermometer, the infrastructure increases, the energy use increases, and boom. And go to Australia here on this map, for example. Here's a perfect example. If you go to Australia and zoom in, okay, you see that we have, you know, the highest density of warming at the major cities, uh, you know, Sydney, um, Brisbane, um, you know, over on the West, Perth, you know, all of these places are warming dramatically. And yet, as you point out, Dr. Spencer, NOAA takes this data from these cities as is and mixes it with the stations like in the middle of the middle of nowhere, like Cooperpedia in the middle of Australia, which doesn't have a whole lot of urbanization. There are a bunch of opal miners that live underground for the most part. And so there hasn't been this giant infrastructure that's popped up, even though Cooperpedia is one of the hottest places on earth on a regular basis, we don't see a warming signal there. Yeah, it's uh, one thing I learned in all this is it's pretty hard to take small sets of stations and make sense out of their differences. The This urban heat island effect, while, while those of us that commute, you know, from, from the suburbs to to, <laughs> to the city during, during the morning, we notice the warming, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. You would think that this is a very clean thing to analyze. But when you look at the data from all of these thousands of stations and look at neighboring stations, there's a lot more going on than just the urban heat island effect, which, which makes it really difficult. And this maybe this is why this hasn't been done before, is the urban heat island effect is buried in with all kinds of other things that also contribute to the temperature difference between two stations right. that are, say, only... 20 miles apart. You know, there might be a pond nearby. There might be a park. Uh, one might be, you know, at 800 foot elevation difference than the other one. There's all of these things mixed in together. 
leads to a lot of noise. And what we do is, is we beat down the noise with tens or even hundreds of thousands of observations. Right. And as Dr. Um, Judith Curry points out, climate is a wicked problem. And it appears that UHI is just as wicked. It's got all these confounding factors, you know, that are mixed in trying to figure out, well, what is the real signal? What are we really looking at here with temperature yeah. over the last hundred years? And it, it's very difficult to disentangle all these yeah. different pieces. So if you could summarize this real quickly, what would you say to people who want to look at this for the first time? Oh, look at it for the first time? Well, I don't know. We've, we've got a data set if people like to uh, analyze data. Um, I mean, I'm just hoping that maybe this will spur people, including uh, the people at NOAA that, that put these huge uh, temperature data sets together, uh, you know, because they've done a wonderful job of gathering. You know, it's a lot of work, you know, gathering all of this data from all around yeah, the world and doing, doing quality control and all of that. It's that final step of how do you adjust the data? You know, how do you analyze the data? I'm just hoping that this will open up along with those, those homogenization studies that have been done recently saying that their current homogenization techniques probably aren't good enough, uh, will That's spur true. other research. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of out there asking the question and encouraging people to, to start looking at this more closely. Great, thank you. For those of you uh, that want to look at this data yourself, you can go to drroyspencer.com and look for his two blog posts on this showing examples as well as the data set itself. It is open to the public. You can download this, analyze it yourself, and come to your own conclusions. And I hope you do that. And I hope any scientist that might be watching this would take interest in this and do their own expert independent analysis to verify what Dr. Spencer has found. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. I'm sure there'll be lots of comments that uh, people have about it and we'll forward any good questions to you. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. Thank you, Anthony. And there you have it. This is one of the most amazing things I've seen in the last decade when it comes to climate science and it's real science that he's done there. I welcome your comments, guys. Well, you can't go wrong with Dr. Spencer's work. I mean, we reference his work all the time. Um, he puts together some very nice analyses on specific cities, too. He did one on Phoenix a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was very interesting and very pertinent because it really does. I mean, Phoenix is one of the worst urban heat islands in the country, I would say. Um, there's something like a 20 degree difference between uh, inner city and uh, like rural temperatures at night. Um, it's uh, so this kind of work is really important. I think I just wish that the people who are the supposed, you know, experts would, would take it a little bit more seriously, instead of just scoffing and saying that they can throw a computer algorithm at it and solve everything. I, I, I agree with everything Linda has said. Um, I wish people like uh, BT Anthony would actually look at studies as opposed to saying, well, it's been debunked. Well, you know what? No one's debunked this recent study because no one's examined it yet. It's just new out. Tell me you've debunked that. Tell me what your qualifications are as a scientist going through the details that he went through and that you've proven that's wrong. As importantly, Spencer doesn't say humans aren't contributing or playing a primary culprit. The urban heat island is all humans. 
We've created the urban heat island effect through our growth of cities and urbanization. Of course, it's humans affecting the temperature in localities and then humans deciding how to blend uh, bad data with good data. It's like taking pond water, mixing it with bottled water and thinking you're going to get a good result. Oh, that's quality water because we, you know, it's, it's a blend. So he's both right. It is human caused. It's just not fossil fuel emissions and, and, and uh, carbon dioxide. I would say this. We constantly talk, you know, Anthony, you constantly talk about the urban heat island effect as the nighttime, the, the slow release overnight of the infrared. But your own research, you know, the, the very detailed look at um, different temperature stations show it's not just nighttime that where the bias is. If you have a thermometer next to a brick building in a parking lot during the heat of the day, that's registering more heat than it would be if it were 150 yards away from any artificial source. So it's even hotting up during the day. If you have a thermometer stationed next to diesel exhaust constantly because they're at a, a, a truck transport station, uh, a, a garbage truck in a municipality, or uh, next to an air conditioning vent, that's artificial heat that's registering in the day, daytime temperature. So it's yes, it's nighttime heat, but it's also artificial daytime heat. It is. And waste heat is also a factor waste in all heat, of yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, you think about how much energy we use uh, as a society on a daily basis. That heat has to go somewhere once it's been expended, either by burning or, um, you know, being used in electricity or whatever it is. Whereas waste heat, power plants, whether they're nuclear or whether they're coal or natural gas, all expend waste heat. And then when you use the, the result of the power plant, that becomes waste heat. And so we've increased waste heat in addition to increasing the infrastructure, which absorbs heat. And so this is all human caused. And yeah. so one of the things that we are constantly being bombarded with by you know, some of the climate cultists out there is we're deniers. We don't deny this at all. Yes, humans have changed the environment. Yes, humans have made it warmer. But it isn't all about carbon dioxide. And that's what these carbon heads can't seem to get past. They can't seem to think past the fact that it's carbon dioxide and nothing else. Yeah, I I, I was on stage with a, a a scientist about a decade and a half ago now. Gosh, it's it, time just flies. And he his research looked at uh, agriculture's impact on uh, warming and ski areas. He 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 had funding from some ski things. They were wondering why uh, snow was disappearing on slopes in Mexico. And uh, when he went out for additional funding, he threw climate change in there. He said, oh, I think climate change is raising the, the, the suspicion is climate change is raising the temperatures there and that's melting the snow. And we'd like to go research that. But he said on stage, but that's not what we really thought. We said that to get the money. What we really thought and what our work confirmed was, well, in that region of Mexico, the, the top peaks, the highest high up the mountains, temperature hadn't changed almost at all. But what had changed is the agriculture below. They were farming farther and farther up the slopes of the mountains. It was slash and burn agriculture, which meant they were putting a lot of real carbon, black soot, up into the air that was then falling upon the snow that was then artificially melting it. It's still human caused, but it's not the traditional notion of human greenhouse gas emissions causing climate change.
Right. So let's go to some of our viewer questions. We've got a few started there in our chat room. Um, let's let's bring up the first one and see what we've got. William Shugart asked, what about the north-south differences in the numbers and placement of weather stations? Well, that's already handled in the way that the data is analyzed. Um, what you look for is the, the anomaly. Uh, and that is what, you know, the, the anomaly is based on the location and the data history of that station. So that's handled. But yeah, you know, just because it's cooler in the north and warmer in the south doesn't mean there's a trend, you know, at the cooler in the north or not. It's so it, it and as Dr. Spencer points out, it's really difficult to analyze this stuff because there's a lot of noise involved. Uh, there's, you know, there's differences in elevation, difference in latitude, uh, you know, difference in, in urban versus rural, all this stuff. And so it's really difficult. And I will add to what he said, where Dr. Spencer said that NOAA does a, a lot of work to put all this together. And I'm, we're not necessarily bashing NOAA saying that they're not doing good work. It's just that the work that they're doing isn't necessarily precise because we believe that they are missing things. And that's what we've talked about today. Well, I'm going to disagree with you, Anthony. I think they're doing bad work. If they have standards for a temperature station and then their own stations don't meet the standards that they've set and yet they still use it, that's bad. Right. That's a separate issue from the data analysis I was talking about, though. No, that's where I'm saying, you know, they, they collect the data, they do their analysis and so forth. They're not precise in it, but the amount of work they're doing, you know, there is no other agency on the planet that does this. But you're right. If they can't get the station to adhere to their own policies, then you end up with bad data. Next question. Tom White. Noah mixing rural and urban is bad, but where is the ocean data? It's two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Well, the ocean data is even less common. I mean, and, and it's a real mess. I mean, we've got ship data, we've got buoy data, we've, you know, it's it just, it's a mess. And a, a few years ago, back in 2015, um, Dr. Um, Tom Carl and Dr. Tom Peterson published a paper where they went in and they made some adjustments and assumptions in the NOAA uh, ship temperature data, which was just really just bad. It was that that was at a case where they really did bad work, and I called them out on it. And they went ballistic and you know called me all kinds of names and stuff. But they, the point is, they they made an, an assumption about ship temperature, and it had to do with something really simple. And it's again placement. It's all about placement. It used to be they would throw buckets over the side. They'd pull a bucket up, a canvas bucket, and then they would put a thermometer in the bucket and measure the sea surface temperature. Right. Then they switched to water temperature inlets for the ship's engines. And they would have a thermometer in the engine room looking at what's the water temperature coming in. Well, the problem is, is that there was no quality control in that. I mean, anybody can throw a bucket over and bring it up and get the temperature. There's not much you can mess up with that. It's the same process over and over again. But with the ship inlets, they had no control over where is the inlet placed? Is, it, is there a waste heat outlet? further upstream, you know, on the ship, on this side, you know, they just, so it was just extra noise in the data. And they heralded this as, you know, new and improved Well, and just ignored it. Look, the, 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 the truth is, if you're in a ship's engine room where the water's coming in, it's hotter already. You ever been in a ship's engine room? It's hot. Engines create a lot of heat. That's an artificial heat source. 
Uh, and it's a substantial artificial heat source. Go two levels above that, and you find it's much cooler on those ships. Um, now, what Carl and them did is even worse than that. A, they rushed to publication because they wanted to be relevant for uh, the 2015 Paris Climate Conference. And it wasn't just you that called them out. It was their own agency's quality control manager who called them out. An award-winning controller. He said, no, you can't do it like this. Let me see your raw data and run it through the things that by our standards, you're supposed to run it through. Oh, we lost part of the data. The dog ate it. The, <laughs> the, 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 the hard drives got compromised and we didn't have it backed up like we were supposed to by our own rules. Um, in the end, we have about 2,000 or more buoys around the world, still inadequate coverage because the oceans are, uh, you know, two-thirds of the globe, uh, that are pretty much uncompromised that we were getting data from. And they weren't showing the warming that people anticipated. So they went to the new method of, once again, blending. You take the buoys and you blend it with ship engine intake valve data that was not created to provide <laughs> quality control temperature data. Uh, and you blend it and you get, oh my God, it's warming 50% faster than we thought. It's splendid for your protection. Blended <laughs> for, oh. your alarm. Blend it for your alarm. Yeah, right. Anyway, next question. Next question. Engineer guy, any numbers on the square footage of concrete asphalt increased decline at free range? I didn't quite get that. Bring that back. I need to see that again. Increased decline at free range. I don't know what that is. Anybody have any idea what he's talking about there? Can he blow it up? I can't even read the question on my screen. Asphalt there might be a typo or something in it. Concrete asphalt increased decline at free range antennas. Oh, yes. He's talking about free range thermometers. That's right. Free range thermometers are the new rage of the left. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not sure what a free range thermometer is. It, 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 it's not in a, in a closed space with a lot of chickens and things. Um, sure what that question means. Um, well, you, 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 Anthony, you indicated you've heard of it. What's what? What are they talking about? What the hell are they talking? That was about? A, that know. was a joke. He was being sarcastic. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. Okay, is goats coming out soon, Anthony? Yes, yes, it is. Um, this hasn't been widely announced because it's been a project I've been working on now for several months. But I have developed a weather station that is equivalent to the United States Climate Climate Reference Network. Um, triple, triple redundant thermometers, quality control, fantastic instrumentation, and affordable, and repeatable, and easy to make, and doesn't require a government grant. And we're going to be talking about that on this program not too long from now. Uh, we've spent, I've spent the last several months working out bugs, and yes, there's all kinds of bugs with new technology. I mean, uh, right now I'm dealing with a, a new bug that just popped up this week with cold. We got a, a loose battery connector in one of our test systems, uh, and I've put a few test systems out here in the West, and um, I'm going to have a surprise on announcement not too long from now about one very, very special placement 
Um, and I'm sure it's going to drive a lot of alarmist berserk when they hear about it. But that's what we do here. That's we take we take these things and then we factually impale <laughs> these folks with data. So yeah, it's coming out. Look for an announcement. Uh, just uh, patience, please, because good science should not be rushed. Instead of instead of Vlad the Impaler, it'll be Watts the Impaler. <laughs> Zachary Visionoff writes. How about passing a new law requiring feds and cities and counties all across the United States to disclose exactly how much has been spent since 1995 on all this climate-friendly regions BS, including the cost of the elite stupid conferences <laughs> those folks all fly to? Well, you know, that sounds like an excellent idea. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it makes too much sense. No. You can't trick politicians to do that. The next time a politician says something about transparency and we're the most transparent administration, bring this up and say, okay, be transparent. Right, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so there's the music. We've hit our climate data. Set. Time How limit. much is spent on food for uh, hungry children? Sterling, you cut out for about a half of it. <laughs> so that it cut back in at the very end. That's kind of funny. Um, but you're probably right. I agree. Yeah. Anyway, so that's it for us today. Thanks for joining us on the program. I want to extend my thanks again to Dr. Roy Spencer for uh, not only his work, but for agreeing to appear on our program. And thanks to you, Linnea, and thanks to you, Sterling, for your expert commentary. And thanks to, your viewer, thanks to our viewers for their questions and so forth. Remember, we have websites that debunk these things on a daily basis, climaterealism.com. And for factual debunking, Climateataglance.com. We just put up a new one just this week on Arctic sea ice. Go check it out, climateataglance.com. And Linnea has a fantastic website on energy called energyataglance.com. And uh, Sterling publishes a, a uh, once a week uh, energy roundup and climate and energy news roundup that you can subscribe to on the Highland website. So go check that out as well. Anyway, thanks to everybody for joining us today. I'm hoping that you have a great Friday and a fantastic weekend. I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for the Environment, or for, uh, Environment and Climate, or something like that, uh, at the Heartland Institute, wishing you goodbye. He's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs>